The Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast and Project. Now, typically, the podcast is set up to bring you pearls and take-home points from our weekly conference at NYU Bellevue. Today, though, we're going to mix it up a little bit, and we're going to highlight a blog post and a journal review that went up on the blog last week. Our core content post last week focused on the diagnosis and emergent management of hyperkalemia. This is an extremely common disorder that can be seen in up to 10% of hospitalized patients, so you're going to run into it over and over again. Hyperkalemia is defined as any serum potassium level over five and a half, but I don't think we generally get too worked up until the level pops up over about 6.0. There's really five major causes of hyperkalemia. Number one, the most common, but the least lethal, is pseudohyperkalemia. This is basically extravascular hemolysis. You draw the blood, and somewhere in the process of you drawing it and it going to the lab, the red cells hemolyze, and you get potassium that spills out of those cells. So you get a falsely elevated number. Renal failure is the number two cause that you have to focus on. Potassium is primarily eliminated by the kidney, so if the kidneys aren't working, you're going to retain potassium. Acidosis, number four is massive cell death. The main things we look at here are tumor lysis syndrome, rhabdomyolysis, burns, crush injuries, and again, hemolysis, but now not the pseudohyperkalemia extravascular hemolysis, but intravascular hemolysis. And then the last major cause are drugs. Things like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, spironolactone, NSAIDs, succinylcholine, all of these things can cause hyperkalemia. The clinical manifestations are a little all over the place. They're not going to really help you hone in specifically on hyperkalemia. In fact, most patients are going to be asymptomatic. There are a number of cardiac effects as increased potassium raises the resting membrane potential of the cardiac myocyte. It slows ventricular conduction, decreases the length of the action potential, and that leads to increased cardiac myocyte excitability. This can result in lethal dysrhythmias. There are a number of vague neuromuscular effects that you can see as well, like paresthesias and weakness. People can actually come in with flaccid paralysis or decreased deep tendon reflexes. The diagnosis is going to be made by a very simple method, and that's measuring a serum potassium level. That level can be artificially elevated. There's extravascular hemolysis going on. Additionally, if you get a blood gas, that can differ from the standard metabolic panel by up to about half a milliequivalent. So you have to be a little bit careful about that as well. All patients who you suspect hyperkalemia in should get a 12-lead ECG. This is a screening test that can rapidly detect severe cardiac manifestations of hyperkalemia, or at least give you a nod to the fact that it's going on. A normal EKG with a significant serum potassium elevation should still raise concerns, but this may be from spurious results, again, from extravascular hemolysis. Now, the sensitivity of EKG to detect hyperkalemia is rather poor. There are a number of classic findings like PR prolongation, peak T waves, loss of P waves, and then eventually you can get things like widening of the QRS into a sine wave. But these things can come sort of irregularly, so you can't rely on them for your diagnosis. Now, all patients who have renal impairment, especially those with end-stage renal disease, should get an EKG when they hit the door, almost regardless of their chief complaint. I mean, sure, maybe if they come in for a sprained ankle, you can avoid it, but otherwise, you've got to at least be thinking about hyperkalemia in these patients because they're very likely to get it. 
Now we went over those classic findings in the EKG, but there are a number of non-classic EKG findings you can see as well. Things like AV blocks, sinus bradycardia, you can see ST elevation, depression, basically anything on the EKG could be hyperkalemia. So at this point, you've done your screening EKG, you've sent off your labs, you get a potassium level back that's elevated. Let's say it's seven and there are some EKG changes as well. How are we gonna manage the patient? So we're gonna start with our basics, ABCs, IV, O2 if needed, cardiac monitor, and again, we've already gotten a 12 lead to start. We wanna to try to identify and treat the underlying cause of hyperkalemia. So go back to those five causes we discussed before. For instance, if they've got something like rhabdomyolysis, treat the rhabdo alongside of treating the hyperkalemia itself and remove any inciting factors. So if there are drugs involved, things like ACE inhibitors or NSAIDs, make sure to stop those. Take those off the patient's list of meds. Now, if the patient's asymptomatic with an elevated potassium and no EKG changes, what should we be focused on as far as taking care of the patient? Well, we wanna eliminate potassium from the body. We can enhance renal elimination by giving IV hydration if they're volume depleted, and then adding a potassium-wasting loop diuretic, something like furosemide. If the patient's anuric or they have end-stage renal disease, you're gonna to wanna to go ahead and arrange for hemodialysis to take place. Now, sodium polystyrene or K-exalate has long been in the armamentarium for eliminating potassium from the body. The truth though is that it doesn't really work very well. There's a piece on Rebel EM I wrote a while back that looks at K-exalate and why it's not gonna be very effective in the emergency department. Let's move from the asymptomatic patient to the symptomatic patient or the patient who has significant EKG changes. We're gonna to wanna to start by stabilizing the cardiac myocytes with calcium salts. The calcium salt helps to recreate the electrical gradient leading to a rapid reversal of cardiac effects and rapid stabilization. We have two options here, either calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, and it really doesn't matter which one of these you use. They're both effective. However, if you're gonna give calcium gluconate, you've gotta give three times more than you give of calcium chloride. So you're gonna give three ampules of calcium gluconate as opposed to just giving a single ampule of calcium chloride. The onset's pretty quick. If they've got a wide QRS, you can often see that QRS narrow in front of you as you administer the drug, and it's gonna act for about 20 to 30 minutes. The next thing we wanna do is shift the potassium into the intracellular space. And this is temporary. It's really just buying you time while you move on to step three. So we're gonna start by using things like insulin along with dextrose if they've got a normal glucose level. Insulin acts by activating the sodium potassium ATPase and its effects peak around 15 to 30 minutes with a duration of action between 30 and 60 minutes. The effect here is it's gonna lower your serum potassium by about a half to 0.6 millimoles. Make sure to concomitantly give dextrose to the patient unless they're hyperglycemic, and you're gonna to wanna to closely monitor their glucose levels to make sure they don't fall too low. The next medication we can use are beta adrenoreceptor agonists like albuterol or salbutamol. The mechanism here is it activates beta receptors leading to potassium shifting into the cells. The dose is gonna be 10 to 20 milligrams of inhaled albuterol. That's about four to eight standard ampules. The onset of action again is gonna be less than 15 minutes and it's gonna lower your serum potassium by about 0.5 to 0.6 millimoles. The duration of action again, about 30 to 60 minutes. Now it's unlikely to have any effect in a patient who's taking a beta blocker, so watch out for that. Lastly, when it comes to shifting the potassium, we can think about using sodium bicarbonate. The literature on this is pretty sparse, so it's unclear whether this is really gonna be beneficial. It seems to have a little bit more effect in patients who are a little acidemic, but again, the literature here, not robust. 
After we've stabilized the cardiac myocytes with calcium, we've shifted the potassium, we need to start thinking about, again, eliminating potassium from the body. Hemodialysis, hydration, perhaps forced elimination of potassium using loop diuretics, but again, don't rely on KX Lite to save you here. Finally, what do we do about the patient who is asymptomatic and they have minor EKG changes, but an elevated potassium level? Well, there's minimal recommendations on how we should manage these patients. Again, we should probably focus on eliminating potassium from the body. You could consider giving calcium salts if their potassium level's really high, as patients may rapidly progress through the EKG changes into something bad. However, remember that calcium doesn't last that long, only 30 to 60 minutes. So you really should be focused on eliminating potassium from the body. Okay, so let's wrap up this blog post with some take-home points. Number one, always obtain an EKG in patients who have end-stage renal disease upon presentation. Hyperkalemia is really common in this group, and we should be able to find it quickly, or at least screen for it quickly using an EKG. Take-home point number two, if you get an elevated potassium level, go ahead and check an EKG. The reason here is because pseudo-hyperkalemia is so common. You don't want to treat that patient for their hyperkalemia and push the potassium level really far down because hypokalemia can have its own problems associated with it. If the patient with hyperkalemia is unstable or has significant EKG changes, rapidly administer calcium salts, either calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. And in patients who are aneuric, early mobilization of your dialysis resources is going to be critical. There's always a delay in getting this done, so call them early. The second post I thought we'd discuss is one of our journal updates. This was a journal update looking at the article Diltiazem versus Metoprolol in the Management of Atrial Fibrillation or Flutter with Rapid Ventricular Rate in the Emergency Department. This was published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2015, and it's actually from a bunch of friends right up the street at Maimonides who published this. Now, the background here is that AFib is really common. In fact, it's the most common dysrhythmia encountered in the emergency department, with the exception of sinus tachycardia. Atrial flutter is less common, but the management's pretty similar to AFib, so we tend to lump these things together. In patients with chronic atrial fibrillation or an unknown time of onset, we're really going to focus in on controlling their rate. And then, of course, we want to think about whether they need anticoagulation or not. Now, both beta blockers and calcium channel blockers have been used for rate control, but it's not clear whether one of these is superior to the other. If you ask most emergency physicians, they'll tell you they like using calcium channel blockers, but most cardiologists would prefer that we use a beta blocker. So the clinical question this article asked is, is diltiazem or metoprolol more effective for rate control and atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response or RVR in the ED? The population they looked at, they were basically looking at patients over 18 who came in with AFib or A flutter. The intervention was diltiazem 0.25 mg per kg to a max dose of 30 mg or metoprolol 0.15 mg per kilogram to a max dose of 10 mg IV. Their primary outcome was what percentage of patients had a heart rate under 100 beats per minute within 30 minutes of drug administration. They also looked at things like systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and heart rate at every five-minute interval leading up to 30 minutes. Now, this was a prospective, randomized, double-blind study, all the things we like to see. So what did these guys find? Well, they collected 54 patients, two of whom had to be excluded after randomization, one because their blood pressure went down and one because the patient refused care. 
The primary outcome of heart rate under 100 beats per minute at 30 minutes was significantly higher in the DILT group. Diltiazem was 95.8% effective in getting the heart rate under 100 beats per minute at 30 minutes versus metoprolol, which was only 46.4% effective at doing this. At every five-minute interval, diltiazem was more likely to rate control the patient than metoprolol. And there were no significant differences as far as bradycardia or events of hypotension between the two groups. The strength of this study is that while it was small, it is the largest randomized double-blind control trial comparing these two drugs head-to-head. -head. Also, randomization and blinding were very well done. The authors conclude that diltiazem was more effective in achieving rate control in ED patients with atrial fibrillation and did so with no increased incidence of adverse events. My conclusions here are pretty similar. Diltiazem appears to offer more rapid rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation and rapid ventricular response than metoprolol. However, we'd like to see a larger multi-center randomized control trial to make sure that this is really true. Does this article have a potential to impact current practice? I give this one a sort of. I mean, this study really helps to defend what is common practice for ED patients who present with this disorder. So it gives us a little bit of ammo when our consultant says, why did you use diltiazem? Metoprolol is much better. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. We've got some great stuff going on in the upcoming week. Wednesday, there's going to be a post on CHF exacerbation management. On Thursday, we'll have another journal update. This one's going to be looking at the escape trial, endovascular management of acute CVA. Come on over and check out our site at coreem.net. Visit us on Facebook and Google+, and follow us on Twitter at core underscore em.